Today is Wednesday, November 20th. This is Perspective from Politics NC. I'm Kirk Kovac here, downtown Raleigh with Gary Pierce again, and Thomas Mills. How are you guys doing? Good, Kirk. Great, Kirk. So the biggest ticket item right now is obviously impeachment. It's been all over TV this week. We've had the beginning sort of of the proper uh, hearings. So there are two prominent North Carolinians who are playing big roles in this or will be. Uh, one of those is Representative Mark Meadows. The other is Senator Tom Tillis. So I'll open it up to you guys to sort of discuss what's been going on and the implications it may have in North Carolina. Appreciate that, Kirk. Gary, I, I, I just kind of watching uh, ev- all over my Twitter feed, every time something happens, I see either Mark Meadows come up and, and try to knock down some of these Republican, uh, I mean, some of these uh witnesses that are impugning Trump's uh, honor. And then uh, Tom Tillis comes up and, and he's talking about how, what a sham these, these things are. But it looked to me, looked to me like these things are real. These, these hearings are real. They're, they're real problems that the Trump's got. And, you know, I I wonder, does it, does it matter to, to, to Walt, uh, uh, Mark Meadows and, and Tom Tillis that they're, jumping on what looks like could be the wrong side of these hearings? Well, I guess it tells you a lot about the Republican Party and about gerrymandering. I mean, if it, it may be working, Kirk made a point earlier, it may be working for Mark Meadows in his district right now, but in a new district, it may not work. You know, it may not be that everybody believes the earth is 6,000 years old. Right. And, and Tom Tillis is probably what he has to do to survive in the Republican primary but it's not helping him in the general election. And the other thing that occurs to me about this, because I'm old and I remember these things, out of the uh, Watergate hearings, which I'm constantly reminded of, we had two great North Carolinians come out of that, Sam Irvin and Rufus Edmiston. That's right. I don't think the state is going to come out as well this time with these two. <laughs> yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure anybody's going to remember Mark Meadows uh, trying to— Well, they may remember him, but not <laughs> for why he wants to be. <laughs> right, right. But it, it, it's, it, you know, it, it was interesting— Watching this morning, uh, where you had Sondland, what's his the ambassador yeah, Sondland, yes, yeah, uh, testify who basically threw everybody under the bus, and and uh, I don't know how how do you how do you repudiate what this guy said this morning? I mean, well, you know, the whole thing about this is these guys are turning on each other pretty fast, and and this is where there's karma in the world. Yeah, you know, Trump is not known for loyalty; right. he turns on people fast, and they figure that out. They're not going to be the ones, the ones left holding the bag. But the other thing that strikes me that's so different from Watergate, in Watergate it took, what, two years right. to get to the smoking right. gun. Yep. In this case, the smoking gun came out at the very beginning from the White House, what they call the transcript of the call. It's not a transcript. It's notes of the call where it's clear what Trump did and what Trump did wrong. I mean, we started there. We didn't have to wait two years to get to that. Right. You know, somebody, I noticed somebody on Twitter pointed out that we've got to remember all these witnesses that are, that are showing up, these are all Trump allies. You know, none of these people uh, are, are hardcore partisans. They're, they're either career diplomats or they're people like the ambassador this morning who, who were, were supposedly loyal to him. I mean, Trump was telling us what a great guy he was just two weeks ago, and today he says, oh, I barely know the guy. 
Right. You know, <laughs> but he, he still says it was a perfect call. Oh, right. You know, and, and, and I guess the other thing we keep hearing here is what I heard two guys talking today at the gym. Well, I don't understand yet what Trump did wrong, but then he quickly said, I'm not watching any of the hearings. Well, it's very clear what he did wrong, which he perverted foreign policy to get right. a political favor done to help him, which, you know, that's, a, that's about as close to an impeachable act as you can get. Right. Well, I mean, it, today the ambassador said there was there was a quid pro quo, and and the quid pro quo was you announce an investigation, or we're not giving you aid, and that the the problem with the aid is is that was approved by Congress, and he doesn't have the right to withhold that aid, uh, and particularly not in exchange for attacking one of his political opponents. And, it, you know, man, that's, that's just blatant corruption. I, I don't think, though, Democrats want to build a case around a Latin phrase. I don't think no, that's no, going to make right. it clear to everybody. And so what's been interesting to me is to watch who I think the smartest person in this whole game is, and that's Nancy Pelosi. Oh, Her use that. of words. I mean, she deliberately has used the words bribery and extortion. Yep. And if you look in the Constitution, those are actually, I think it's treason, bribery, other high crimes and misdemeanors. And you wonder how long it's going to be before some Democrat says the word treason. Right. Well, there have been some on Twitter who've already been saying that. But, but you know, I, I, I agree with you. I, I'm watching Nancy Pelosi. Not only do I think she's right with what she's doing constitutionally, She's one of the savviest political operators I think I've ever seen. I mean, she seems to have an inherent read on the American public. She also has an incredible ability to get under Trump's skin. <laughs> I think she gets, has the ability to get under all Republican skin. <laughs> well, I, I tell you, the other thing that strikes me about it, Thomas, is I was watching sort of replays of it last night. As, as people do watch this, you hate to say it as a TV show and as a drama yeah. and, and, you know, human situation— and it may be they're learning a lot of things about Trump that they didn't know before. But what they're really getting to see is the congressman on both sides of, of, of the dais, you know, and their questions. Go back to your point about Mark Meadows, who's not there, but who's on TV. Tillis is there. I think part of what we got to look at is how do these people look to the American people? Right. Yeah, and I, I think the one thing... The other person I think who's going to come out of this as a star is, is the guy Schiff, at, at, yeah. who, who uh, is very, in all of his closing remarks and his opening remarks, he lays out a very clear case. I mean, yesterday at the end of the day, he laid out a case. He said the only defense that the Republicans have right now is that the problem that the president had is he got caught. They're angry that he got caught. They're not denying he did this. They're not even denying it's wrong. They're, com they're complaining about a whistleblower who told on him. Well, the real problem in the whistleblower is the guy who decided to release the notes of the call, and I guess that's Trump. Right. I mean, Trump is the one who, who outed himself in this whole thing. Yeah, no, that's right. That's right. I, uh, you know, and you I tell you, here's the other lesson from this, and Democrats should have learned this from Oliver North in the Iran-Contra hearings, don't attack a guy in a military uniform. Right, right, <laughs> yeah. I mean, that, yeah, you, you had you had a guy, 
who was a clear hero. I mean, did you hear his opening statement oh, yesterday yeah. where he, at the end of it he says to his dad, he says, you did the right thing bringing us out of the Soviet Union, and I'm here to tell the truth, and I'll be all right because the right matters here. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, that was well, powerful. And whatever this undecided group is out there, whether it's 10, 15 percent, who, you know, are looking at this thing, they're going to look at what they call it, the optics of Republicans attacking this guy, questioning his patriotism. That was not a smart move. No, that wasn't a smart move. It was, it was, uh, it really looked unpatriotic almost. I mean, here's a guy who, who has basically given his entire life, been fought in a war, been injured by an IED. He's up there in front of Congress and they're going after him. I mean, that, that doesn't go over to... And an immigrant, you know, somebody who's, right. whose father came over here to escape tyranny, and he's talking about, I can do this in America. But then at the same time, we hear the military thinks they're going to have to put him and his twin brother under 24-hour guard at a right. military base to ensure yeah. his safety. Right, right. Now, you don't want to look like a bully, and, and that's the problem the Republicans have. That's the problem that Trump certainly has. And the problem that Meadows and Tillis have, to go back to your point, is they look like toadies for the bully. Right, right. Let, let me go back to the Tillis thing for a minute. You you mentioned uh, you think he's in, in, in taking this role that he's taking as much as anything because of the, the primary he's in. What what do you see about that primary right now? I'm, I'm curious what your take on that is. I know your, your former uh, adversary and former sometime business partner, Carter Wren, uh, is helping Tillis' opponent. But what do you think about that primary? The only thing I know about Republican primaries is what I've learned from Carter. Yeah. And and Carter felt like, I haven't talked to him in a while about this race, but last time I did, he felt that Tillis was very vulnerable. That, yeah, he's done this flip-flop, and he's, you know, doing everything he can to be, to be close to Trump. But that... Uh, Republican primary voters are very suspicious of him. And I read somewhere that not long ago there was a a meeting of Republican senators, I think a private meeting, but one of them leaked this account, that Trump was, that Tillis was at the meeting and Trump was there. And Tillis was apparently kind of toying with him. He said, well, now you used to be against me, but now you're with me, right, Tom? And they said that Tillis looked decidedly uncomfortable in that situation. Well, he's sort of got the same problem. At what point is a guy going to turn on me? Right. Talking about Carter, uh, did you see what Richard Burr said about him the other day? I did not. Somebody asked Richard Burr about uh, what they thought about the the primary, Tom Tillis' primary, and Carter Wren said, well, that's just Carter. I mean, uh, uh, Richard Burr said, that's just Carter Wren's retirement plan. <laughs> well, you know, that's what I, I, you know, that's sort of been a refrain of oh, the Republican it? establishment from the beginning. And I okay. think Carter and some other people in that campaign actually were threatened financially that you won't get so, some business if you do this. But, you know, Carter is a true believer. I know. And, and he sticks up for what he believes. And the, the other thing about Carter is not afraid of anything. Right, and he is a he is a great political strategist, and so I don't like I, said, I know nothing about Republican primaries, but I would never bet against a candidate that Carter's 
working for. I've been, right. I've been in a situation working against Carter and just as soon not go through that again. Well, you know, the, the thing that I, I look at that primary is Carter does have the guy who is the traditional conservative, a real conservative. And the thing that you see about Tom Tillis is it's hard to pin him down as standing for anything. I mean, he is, he, he's moved the goalposts wherever he needed to, to have them to make sure he could score a goal. Um, but Garland Tucker has always been a hardcore conservative. And, and I, think, um, I think that matters to Republican primary voters, you know? One thing that's hard to fake in politics is sincerity and genuineness. I think anybody who looks at Tillis over the last six months as he got in trouble, he wrote the op-ed that criticized yeah. uh, Trump on his wall, and then he quickly flipped. He does not look comfortable. He looks like he's, he's saying lines that he knows he has to say that he really doesn't believe, and that comes through. And his problem is he's got two places where that can bite him. It can bite him in the primary. If he survives the primary, then he's stuck in the general. Right. Where does he go then? Right. You know, I've, I've kind of I've followed Tillis relatively closely, and, and the thing that bothers me about him is, is, is I think the guy started out in politics with some fairly, I don't think there were strong principles but kind of a belief in good government and that government could do positive things. Um, his whole career began when he was trying to get a bike path uh, or, or bike paths put in, in Cornelius, and, and he couldn't get the town council to approve it, so he ran. That's a pretty liberal position. That's asking the government to fund— That sounds like socialism uh, to oh, me. It reminds me of some socialism, <laughs> I'm telling you. Um, sounds like something they do in Denmark. Right, exactly. <laughs> but, but he's gone all the way from there to, to where he is today, you know? And, and uh, we've just watched this kind of iteration of I wrote a, I wrote a piece about him in The Atlantic back when he was running in 2014 and said, what does Tom Tillis want now? And he, he kind of wants to be stuff, but he doesn't really know what he wants to do. And I think there comes a place in poli point in politics where you have to know what you want to do. And I'm just not sure he knows that. He likes being a senator. Well, he likes being a senator, and it, it's a sign that he's caught up in a party that we lose sight of how much it has changed in just three years, Right. the three years since Trump won the nomination. The Republican Party is a totally different thing from what it was before. It's a totally different thing from what it was when he got into it. And, um, and the Republicans, they're sort of like, they're like Captain Ahab now. They, you know, they they've lashed themselves to the whale, yeah, to the great orange whale, <laughs> exactly. if you would. And um, you know, they're either gonna they're either gonna sink or swim with him. Yeah, you know, thinking about the way they've changed. The other thing that's kind of fascinated me about what's happened in the Republican Party is watching these people that are never Trumpers. That, I find myself with an incredible respect for people like Bill Kristol and, and uh, George Will who've decided that I'm not willing to stick with my party just for the sake of being part of the party. I, I joined this party because it stood for something, and if it's going to give up those values, I'm not going with it. And uh, 
I'm just curious, kind of what do you have you paid much attention to the 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 the, the they call people call them never Trumpers, but I think they're more than that. I think they're true conservatives. You know, there there's uh, you see some columnists, the uh, uh, Jonah Goldberg and um, Charlie Sykes, uh, Stephen Hayes. They've all kind of broken off, and and uh, you know, on the one hand, I feel like they're trying to create a Republican Party in waiting. On the other hand, they seem to have very little real influence over where the Republican Party is today. Well, I guess the one thing they have in common is they're not running for anything. They don't they don't right. have to be afraid of Trump in a Republican primary, so they're sort of free to to speak like that. The people I that interest me are people who are friends of mine who are Republicans who are very, very concerned about Trump. And they, they say two things. First of all, they say we hope you Democrats nominate somebody that I can vote for. Because right. I don't want to have to sit it out again. I'm not voting for Trump, but I'm not going to vote for, say, a Bernie Sanders. Um, so, you know, I hope it's somebody I can vote for. The second thing they say is, what's going to happen to us after Trump? Because there will be a time after Trump. Or is this what we are from now on? Has, has something been set loose that will control the Republican Party forever? And in that case, what do we do? Right. I, you know, I think, I think it's the latter. Um, I don't know if it's forever. But I think the, the, the party has made a shift. Um, and, and to some degree, it's, it's changed the Democratic Party, too. Because it's pushed us to the left. It switched us to the left. It, and it that's why you hear a lot of talk today, and I never think it's going to happen. People always talk about, it. well, maybe we'll have a third party. Right. You know, I, I, think, I think there's probably a critical mass of people out there to make a third party. I think there's, there's some problems with it, though. Too many of them come from the right, and too many come, they're center-right and center-left, and, and they have some fundamental problems in the middle. But we also have laws set up in this country that would have to change almost state by state to ever create viable third parties. Well, what has always happened historically? I mean, we've had not a, we've had third parties. You yeah. know, a, a third party would bull moose, a Ross Perot, right. and all that. But what typically happens... When a third party comes along, like let's say George Wallace, right, ran as a third party, it gets that energy gets absorbed by one party or the other. Right. All the Wallace people, the, the, the Southern whites who were opposed to segregation, went to the Republican Party. Yeah. The Perot people, a lot of them became Tea Partiers, and became Trumpers. Yeah. So it, typically, one party or the other will absorb that. That's just sort of the way our system does work. Right. And, I, you know, I do think Democrats in some way are, are poised. If, if they're willing, they would have to push back against their left flank. But I think they are poised to um, bring in a lot of moderate Republicans who, who don't see eye to eye with Trump, don't see eye to eye with kind of the cultural conservative direction of the, of the Republican Party. Um, but somebody's going to have to make them feel welcome come into the Democratic Party because they're never going to accept uh, um, really high taxes. They're never going to accept uh, some of the social programs that, that, that the left is pushing, mm -hmm. left flank of the party is pushing. But there, there's, there is the potential for building a huge, a very big tent party. Um, well, maybe so. I mean, that's, that's really the debate the Democratic Party right. is having right now. Is it going to go in a moderate direction? Or is it, is it going to go farther to the left? Is it going to go with a Biden or a Buddha judge? Or is it going to go, to the other hand, to a, 
Elizabeth Warren or, or Bernie Sanders. I mean, in that way, Trump has really not just changed the Republican Party. Right. He's changed the Democratic Party because he's really created this this energy on the left. Um, and you see, we've had these two elections, um, the Kentucky and Louisiana governor's elections, and both of them were able to sort of do both. Right. You know, right. they were able to appeal to moderates, but they also were able, either through their own efforts or because it was Trump, to inspire people on the left or minority turnout or, or whatever it is. But that's a real, this is a real fight in the Democratic Party, a real yeah. split. I, I agree. What do you, just out of curiosity, how do you see the, the, the we got debates tonight. How do you see the Democratic Party in the presidential field right now? Do you think, I mean, there, there's all this angst about it, mainly, I think, among a relatively small number. There's of always angst. We, <laughs> Republicans are the, I mean, Democrats, we're the angstiest people in the world, you know. I remember it's always, we get, you know, well, Clinton, oh, how we, can we ever win with Clinton? And then right. Obama, right. what are you talking about, Obama, you know? Right, right, yeah. So that's, we're, that's congenital to us, you yeah. know. We're bedwetters and worriers. <laughs> that's exactly right. That's what I think. But I, I think there, you know, we, we got a big four. Yeah. Biden, Buttigieg, Warren, and Sanders. Right. And and part of the question is, can anybody at that second level break through? And I wouldn't rule it out now. I mean, we always forget. We, we go through all these gyrations, but it doesn't matter until people start voting. Exactly. And that's going to come fast and furious in just a well, just a couple of months, right? right. I mean, we, you know, early February, and then in March, we'll be voting. North Carolina will be voting as part of Super Tuesday. But I, th I think right now we're looking at one of those big four, and and uh, you know who's going to be the who's going to have the target on their back tonight. I expect right. Buttigieg and Warren will be that's it. Was everybody's who, firing that tonight? That's who I think. You know, I remember in two thousand and four, in the, um, they went into to Iowa. With Kerry had been kind of the odds-on favorite for most of the election, and all of a sudden in late fall, you saw Gephardt and and. Um, uh, Vermont Governor Dean, Dean Howard. Dean. All of a sudden, they 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 took off, and going into the Iowa caucuses, they were expected Dean and Gephardt would be the uh, top candidates, but they started beating up each other in in paid advertising three or four weeks before it, and then all of a sudden, it they both dropped and. It was Kerry and Edwards right on top of each other and flipped the entire thing. Dean was basically gone. Both of them were essentially gone after Iowa, after one caucus. Both of them going in as seen as the top two. And, I, you know, I that's where I can see something like that happening again. I mean, I think contrary to what a lot of these Democrats were in, I think we got an incredibly strong field. I mean, I, I think there are, I think Castro's a strong candidate. I think Hooker's a strong candidate. I mean, in a general election, Klobuchar is a strong candidate. There are a lot of candidates that could do very well in a general election, in addition to the top four. So, you know, I, I don't, I don't think anything's. For well, nothing. Sure right you know, we we sort of cover this week to week and month to month and think about it. I think, to me, in a way, the biggest change that's happened is, you go back a month ago, the story was about Elizabeth Warren is coming on, Joe Biden is a dead duck. Right. Well, Biden's still standing. Yep. And I don't think the Ukraine stuff has really hurt him. And I think the fact that Trump is worried was worried about him, worried enough to risk, risk impeachment, probably helps Biden. 
And now Warren's under a lot of fire yep. about Medicare for all in taxes. When, as you read more about it, what's interesting is that was never really her issue. Exactly. That was the thing she didn't intend to run on, but now she's all wrapped up in it. And the question is, has she made a mistake well, by getting that far out on it? You know, I got to say, I've been more, I was not a, a Warren fan when she started running. I, I just felt like she wasn't the right type of candidate. And, and I've been more impressed with yeah. her as she grew as a candidate. She is impressive. And, and uh, this just day before yesterday, all of a sudden, it's one of those things that nobody really paid that much attention to. Her position is now uh, medic. It, it, it's a she wants a, a robust public option right. that would eventually lead to Medicare for all. So she you know, at first she wants Medicare for more right. before she has Medicare right. for all. Yeah, I mean it is and, a, a much more modulated. So she's yeah, and she she's starting to move move her positions. Um, and I'll tell you something. The thing about Biden that I don't think anybody quite grasps, and I, I've spent a lot of time talking to my friends in the African American community. They're solidly, solidly behind him, and um, for a lot of different reasons. Uh, but, but one is, you know, they they believe, and I don't think people estimate under. I think they underestimate how revolutionary it was to have Joe uh, Barack Obama. I mean, nowadays he was president for eight years. We we take it for granted. But when he became uh, the nominee. And Joe Biden didn't try to overshadow him. He, 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 even though he had far more experience, this white guy said, "I'm taking the back seat. I'm, I'm, I'm second fiddle to this guy, and I'm going to support him in any way I can." And I think there's a there's a a, a, a loyalty there because of the way Biden handled his candidacy with Barack Obama and the friendship that that evolved from that. That that you, you can't underestimate. And the question is, can anybody take that away from him? I talked a couple of weeks ago to an elected official in North Carolina, who well, I'll protect by not naming him, made an interesting observation about Biden. He said, I think Biden in this cycle is sort of going to be like, at least politically, like Trump was for the Republicans. Yep. He said everybody kept thinking Trump was going to collapse. Something was going to happen. There's no way he could win the nomination. He was going to either destroy himself or... He'd just fall of his own weight at some point. But he kept coming back, kept coming back, and he was in front. He said, I think Biden's going to be the same thing for us this cycle. Well, He's going to just be standing there and still standing in there. And in the end, he's going to be standing at the, where's the convention, Milwaukee or something, with a with right. a bud in his hand and, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you know something, there, there are a few things about Biden. And my brother and I were talking this morning, kind of came to that same conclusion, is that, that there's a good chance that, Everybody kept thinking, well, when the field gets whittled down, it's going to end up somebody versus Trump, and it, and the anti-Trump's going to beat Trump. That's not the way it works. Mm -hmm. And and it's kind of like Biden. If Biden ends up in this crowded field and just can maintain, he ends up the nominee. But the, the other thing is, and I think this is kind of a reflection of who we are as a party. We've become this kind of intellectual very educated, um, suburban, urban-suburban party. And, and Joe Biden is still at, at core, regardless of where he is in his station in life today, he's still pretty much of a working-class guy. And they're more working-class people. And he's got an innate 
um, sympathy and empathy for, for working families because that's where, that's where he came from. And I think you talked about it with Tillis and the genuineness. People see that with Biden. And I think that's a connection that crosses a lot of ideological lines. And it's well, what well, makes him a... You can look at it, you know, it sounds like a Democrat identity politics in a way, but, but sort of look at the groups people have. Biden has pretty good hold on moderates, and he has a pretty solid hold on African-Americans. Yep. Um, Warren and Sanders are splitting the younger voters and the more liberal voters. Yep. Now, you know, maybe Buttigieg is going to challenge Biden. Maybe Biden's part of his problem is age. Um, don't know, but that's, you know, right now that appears to be a pretty even fight. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I think, I think so. Well, Gary, it's been fun. It has been. Enjoy it. Yeah. Well, let's, let's do it again soon. Kirk? Kirk fell asleep. Yeah. <laughs>